I'm going to be reading from uh, the whole chapter of 2 Peter 2 and the first two verses of chapter 3. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. These false teachers will infiltrate the midst with uh, destructive heresies, even to the point of denying the master who bought them. As a result, they will bring swift destruction on themselves. And many will follow their their debauchery, their destruction on themselves, sorry. And many will follow their debauched lifestyles. Because of these false teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation is pronounced long ago and is not sitting idly by, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but threw them into hell and locked them up in the chains of darkness to be kept until judgment, and if he did not spare the ancient world, but did protect Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with seven others, when God brought a flood on an ungodly world. And if he turned to ashes the city, and if he turned to ashes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, when he condemned them to destruction, having appointed them to serve as an example to future generations of the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man in anguish over the debauched lifestyle of lawless men, For while he lived among them day after day, the righteous man was tormented in his righteous soul by their lawless deeds he saw and heard. If so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials and to reserve the unrighteous for punishment at the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in fleshly desires and who despise authority. Brazen and insolent, they're not afraid to insult the glorious ones. Yet even angels, who are much more powerful, do not bring a slanderous judgment against them before the Lord. But these men, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, do not understand whom they are insulting, and consequently, in their destruction, they will be destroyed. Suffering harm as the wages for their harmful ways, by considering it pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are stains and blemishes, indulging in the deceitful pleasures when they feast together with you. Their eyes are full of adultery, never stop sinning. They entice unstable people. They are trained, they have trained their hearts for greed. These cursed children, by forsaking the right path, they have gone astray because they followed the way of Balaam of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Yet, was rebuked because of his own transgression. A dumb donkey speaking with human voice, a human voice restrained the prophet's madness. These men are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm, for whom the utter depths of darkness have been reserved. For by speaking high-sounding but empty words, they are able to entice with fleshly desires and with debauchery people who have just escaped from those who reside in error. Although these false teachers promise such people freedom, they themselves are enslaved to immorality. For whatever a person succumbs to, that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the filthy things of the world through the riches, through the rich knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, yet again get entangled in them and succumb to them, Their last state has become worse for them than the first. 
For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn back from the holy commandment they had been, that had been delivered to them. They are illustrations of a true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit. And a sow, after washing herself, wallows in the mire. Dear friends, this is already the second letter I've written to you in which I am trying to stir up your pure mind by way of reminder. I want you to recall both the predictions foretold by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through his apostles. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will guide Tom. I pray that you would encourage his heart. And as he delivers this message, that he would um, encourage us to be true followers and take it to heart. And um, as righteous Lot was troubled day by day, I pray that we will be encouraged in your word day by day. Help us this morning and be with Tom as he gives your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we saw what Peter has to say about these guys, wolves in sheep's clothing. He gave us a a vivid, even a fearsome description of the subtle deceptions and dangerous snares that false teachers put before the the people of God. This morning, we're going to see what God has in store for these wolves. Peter will tell us... uh, about God's sure judgment of false teachers along with all the unrighteous. And uh, we'll see that God's promise of protection toward His sheep is just as certain as His promise that He will judge those wolves in sheep's clothing. Finally, next week, of course, it doesn't surprise you I've managed to stretch two messages into three, Uh, we'll look once again at the most critical part of God's sure fortification for us as his sheep, a fortification that powerfully protects us from the lies and temptations of godless men, and that fortification is the true word. After giving us a a quick profile of false teachers in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, Peter makes a chilling statement at the end of verse 3. He says their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. And there's a widespread perception among unredeemed people that Peter's going to talk about uh, in chapter 3, just a little, little while from this passage. And that is the perception that all the talk of God judging wicked men is just talk, that there's no evidence of any such judgment when we look around at what we, what's happening in the world. Uh, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. It may appear to the uninformed as if evil men are getting away with their clever, subtle, deceptive efforts to lure people away from Jesus Christ and into all manner of sinful self-indulgence. But Peter tells us what dozens of other prophets and apostles in in the Bible tell us, and that is that God has a long-standing plan in place for dealing with these false teachers. And that plan will absolutely result in their eternal destruction. 
beginning in verse 4, Peter takes up that theme of impending destruction that will come upon false teachers in the day of judgment. He presents a forceful if-then argument, citing three real-life historical events from the Old Testament in verses 4 through 8 to set up his conclusion in verse 9. The first historical event was God's judgment of rebellious angels. Peter says God cast them into Tartarus, which that's a holding place. That's not hell. It's a place of temporary imprisonment awaiting eternal condemnation. Peter says that God committed those angels to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Watch for that word reserved because it's going to come up again. Jude, apparently referring to the same event, says in Jude verse 6, angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now there's been much discussion about when and under what circumstances this uh, this judgment against false angels occurred. Rather than taking a bunch of time to develop the various positions on that, I'll just give you mine. I believe that this refers to an event recorded in Genesis chapter 6 that immediately preceded the narrative of the great flood. There are several views on that passage among reputable students of the Word, especially the identity of those called the sons of God in that passage. As I understand it, and this is uninspired, this is just my take on it, as I understand it, the sin on the part of the angels in Genesis 6 was that they possessed, they took control over powerful and influential giants among men, literal giants, so that they, those angels, could through those men experience sexual relations with women, whichever women they wanted, they took. The race of godless and very large men that was expanded and empowered through that little angelic adventure, demonic adventure, were known as the Nephilim. If you want to see other vivid examples of Satan and his fallen angels getting their grins by controlling powerful human beings to accomplish ungodly things on earth, you can find many examples in the Bible. Just a few are Daniel chapter 10, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 13. I'll say those again in case anyone's writing them down. Daniel 10, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 13. The second event to which Peter draws our attention is God's judgment of the whole world of the ungodly, that is, ungodly humans, through the flood that covered the whole earth in the days of Noah. And while Peter's focus here is on God's judgment of the godless to play out what he's saying about God's handling of the false teachers, he's nonetheless careful to also point out that God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. The third event is God's fiery judgment of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, in which he reduced those cities to ashes along with the inhabitants of the cities, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. 
At the end of his account of that third destructive judgment, Peter shifts his focus decidedly from God's judgment against the unrighteous to God's gracious deliverance of righteous Lot, Abraham's nephew. And he has a fair amount to say about that rescue of Lot. We'll come back to that deliverance side shortly. Finally, in verses 9 and 10, Peter comes to the conclusion of this if-then argument that he started in verse 4. And here's his conclusion. If indeed God executed all of these fierce judgments and miraculous deliverances, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Now that especially clause applies to the false teachers who were the focus of this whole indictment. While the the visible judgments against ungodly men at the great flood and through the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah ended the physical lives of those ungodly men? Peter is clearly not talking here about a judgment that is limited to physical death. God's wrath against the unrighteous is not satisfied when they lose their physical lives. Just as with the fallen angels whom God consigned to pits of darkness reserved for judgment in the last day, that's verse 4, so also God is keeping false teachers and all unrighteous people under punishment for the day of judgment, verse 9. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. Now, Peter is not saying that false teachers and other unrighteous people will suffer for that unrighteousness in this life. This is important. Peter's not saying that they will suffer in this life for their unrighteousness. Read Psalm 73. He's saying that they are marked out by God for a fierce judgment that is coming. It doesn't mean there aren't any instances of God judging evil and injustice in this life. It means that the promised judgment, the judgment on which we can absolutely count, is future. If we don't get the fact that God's sure judgment of the wicked is judgment deferred, judgment that comes later rather than now, we will badly misinterpret what we see going on in the world today. In fact, we'll badly misinterpret everything that's gone on in the world ever since the fall of Adam. This is important. The clock is ticking, and only God knows how many ticks remain before the sudden detonation. The swift destruction that God will absolutely bring down on all those who advocate falsehood and who delight in sin is more to be feared than anything that mankind has ever imagined. One of the most attractive and convincing arguments that false teachers present to uninformed human beings is that God is not really the holy and just God that the Bible declares Him to be. That He's loving, 
but he's not holy and just. And the proof that they, that they set before us that he is not holy and just is that he is not judging and eliminating evil and injustice here and now. And many people look at that argument and they say, hmm, yeah, that makes sense. And so they think they can do whatever they want. What did the serpent in the garden say to Eve? In effect, he said, God is bluffing. You shall not surely die. God's bluffing. His word, what he told you he would do, is not true. You won't suffer for doing what he he has forbidden. Instead, you'll be blessed. In fact, you'll get to be like him. False teachers are still telling people that God was bluffing about the whole judgment thing. Now, of course, the wreckage from our sin and from God's curse is everywhere. It's not hard to find. And God does, in certain circumstances and at certain times, judge evil and injustice in the here and now. There are many instances in the Bible. But God's complete, decisive, undeniable, promised judgment against sin and sinners is deferred until the return of the righteous judge. And when it comes, there will be nobody saying that God was bluffing. We will never rightly interpret what's going on around us if we don't embrace that clear, emphatic, often repeated declaration of God through His faithful prophets and apostles in both Testaments of the Bible. The full, decisive judgment against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men isn't happening now. It will happen later. Let's not misrepresent that when we're talking to people who don't know the truth. As we saw last week, in verses 11 through 16 of 2 Peter 2, Peter expanded on his profile about false teachers. He told us a whole lot about what they're like and how they operate. Then in verses 17 to 22, he comes back around to the certainty of God's judgment against these advocates of untruth and ungodliness. He says, They are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. He says they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And then he presents one more if-then argument. He says, For if, verse 20, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled again in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. The last state is worse than the first. Now Peter already told us in the first chapter of his first letter that 
we who have been born again to a living hope through faith in Jesus Christ are, quote, protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen, yes, end quote. No created being can stand against the power of God that secures that coming complete salvation for every believer, every child of God. So how is it possible that false teachers could have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, yet then have become once again entangled in those same worldly defilements, overcome by them, enslaved by them, so that their last state has become worse than the first. Well, I believe that verse 20 flashes back to the time before these people became false teachers. They were sinners, but to the time before they became false teachers. In verse 1, Peter uses an interesting word to describe how the false prophets in the Old Testament got into the community of God's people. He says, they arose among the people. That makes sense, considering that the false prophets in the Old Testament were generally Israelites. They didn't start out as false prophets. They grew up in the knowledge of God, at least at some level. But see, they started out as plain old sinners just like the rest of us. They were lost. They were sinners. But they weren't yet false prophets. I believe here in verse 20, Peter's talking about sinners in his own day who came for a time into community with the true saints of God. There might have been many different ways that they came into that community. But they came in as sinners. By their association with the people of God, they escaped the defilements of the world for a time. And they enjoyed an exceedingly privileged situation. I believe this is related to Paul's declaration in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, if any brother, that means a Christian, has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. He's not saying they will always get saved. He's saying there's some way in which they are set apart through that association with believers, with a believer in that case. Whether it's in the context of marriage and family or in the context of the life of the body, the church, when an unbeliever comes into community with the people of God, there is a setting apart, a sanctification that occurs. There's a coming aside from the ways and teachings of the world to the ways and teachings of Christ. That unbeliever is in an amazingly blessed and privileged position during the time of his association with God's chosen people. He's exposed to the true Word of God. He's exposed to Christ Himself living in and through His redeemed. For whatever period of time that unbeliever spends among the people of God, he gets 
first-hand exposure to what Peter calls here the way of righteousness and the holy commandment. But if an unbeliever who has come into that amazingly privileged connection with the spiritual household of God turns back to his previous entanglement in the defilements of the world and is overcome by them to such a degree that he now advocates those defilements and seeks to draw others away from Jesus Christ, Peter says that last that man's last state has become worse than the first. And he compares such a person to a dog who returns to its own vomit or a sow who after washing returns to wallow in the mire. I find Peter's words here to be both deeply encouraging for us as God's people and deeply distressing for those whom Peter is indicting here. These words are encouraging for us because they tell us that even the most hardened of lost sinners who come in among us are by virtue of their association with us in an amazingly blessed situation. I've talked to you before about Rosaria Butterfield, one of the most powerful testimonies I've heard in my life. She was a liberal's liberal. She was an English professor at Syracuse University. She was a vocal advocate of LGBT rights long before everyone else got on that bandwagon. And she was living with her lesbian lover. When she accepted an invitation to dinner at the home of a pastor named Ken Smith and his very hospitable wife, she did so with a deep-seated confidence that she was going to prove that pastor to be a fool. She was going to use whatever she learned from him about the Bible and about Christians to fortify her case that the Bible is the contrivance of bigoted and stupid men and that Christians are fools for believing it. She wasn't a wolf, a wolf in sheep's clothing. She was just a wolf. Her disdain for Christ and for Christians was right out on the table. She was just very convinced in her unbelief, like many of the people, many of the believers in this room used to be. But something happened. Something amazing happened to Rosaria Butterfield. That first dinner with the Smiths led to many, many more dinners. Miss Butterfield, a specialist in whole book literary analysis, read through the entire Bible repeatedly to ensure that her conversations with Pastor Smith were informed conversations. And as he very often does, God used both the Word of Christ and the display of Christ in the lives of those two dear saints to pierce that woman's heart and to lay her soul bare before Himself. He humbled her. He broke her of her arrogance. He showed her her desperate need for the only one who could save her from herself, from her sin, from her deadness. He plucked her out of the darkness and brought her into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she is now a powerfully used instrument in His hands. 
She came in her arrogance into the community of the people of God. And her arrogance and her whole world came graciously crashing down. God loves to use His people and His Word to repeat that miracle over and over, one soul at a time. But some who will come at some point into the midst of God's people as lost sinners will not come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they also will not simply walk away in their unbelief. They will stay. They will claim to believe in Christ. They will claim the godliest of intentions, but they will be utterly cold-hearted toward Christ. They will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Their real, skillfully deceptive agenda will be to draw God's sheep away from their good shepherd and to keep anyone who does not yet know Him from ever knowing Him. They will promise freedom from the constraining authority of God by subtly remaking God in their own image while they themselves are slaves of corruption. The very fact that they are able to come into such close association with the saints of the living God and not come to repentance of faith in Jesus Christ will demonstrate that their enslavement is complete. And their last state will be far worse for them than the first. They will be judged. All right, we've looked at what the Bible says about false teachers and the sure judgment that awaits them, but there is another promise of God that Peter declares here to be sure, to be certain. And it is God's sure rescue of His righteous ones. As Peter recounted a few of God's historical judgments against ungodly angels and men in verses 4-8, through he was careful also to point out two true stories of deliverance that God accomplished in the midst of those severe judgments. God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And God rescued righteous Lot before He utterly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Peter says in verse 9 that those deliverances demonstrate that God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. The word for temptation, by the way, in both Testaments, Greek and Hebrew, there's a word that means temptation that also means testing. And so the translators try to figure out which to use in any passage. I believe it always means, the word always means both. See, temptation, a temptation in the hands of Satan is a refining test in the hands of God. Peter's statement in verse 9 is a little surprising in this context. In the two deliverances that Peter singled out in those preceding verses, God rescued His righteous people out of harm's way when God was about to pour out His fierce wrath on unrighteous human beings or angels. But that's not the kind of rescue or deliverance that Peter's talking about in verse 9. Look at it carefully. 
He's not talking about deliverance from God's wrath. That's a marvelous deliverance that's certainly going to happen. He says he's talking about deliverance from temptation. Now, there's no question that God protected Lot and his family from the outpouring of his own wrath against Sodom and Gomorrah as he had protected Noah and his family from the outpouring of his wrath on the whole world. His gracious deliverance was, was for, of Lot was one of many Old Testament foreshadowings of the atoning death of Jesus Christ that delivers us once and for all from God's destructive wrath against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's Romans 1. The wrath that is due to all who trust in Jesus Christ fell on Him, on Christ. By His wounds, wounds we are healed. That's 1 Peter 2 and Isaiah 53. But as the redeemed people of God, there is another miraculous deliverance that we receive from His gracious hand. Peter says God knows how to rescue or deliver the godly from temptation. Do those words sound familiar? You can be sure they did to Peter. He had heard them before. The very same words for rescue or deliver and for temptation were the words that Jesus used when He taught His disciples how to pray. He said, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver, rescue us from evil or from the evil one. Matthew 6.13 Peter's point here is to affirm two things about God's agenda for mankind as absolutely certain. God will judge false teachers along with all the unrighteous. And God will deliver His people from the snares that false teachers set before us. What does that look like when God rescues us from the temptation that false teachers lay out for us to ensnare us and draw us away from devotion to Christ? How does God rescue us from that? I believe there are two parts to that rescue. One happens here and now. And the other happens later when the Lord returns to bring His ultimate judgment and His ultimate deliverance. Look again at what Peter tells us about the nature of Lot's struggle that led up to God's miraculous rescue of Lot. He says, Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented, vexed day after day with their lawless deeds. Did God do anything to protect Lot from falling into those lawless deeds, into the sensual conduct of unprincipled men before He sent His angels to grab Lot by the arm and to escort him out of Sodom? I believe He did. And I believe that protection took the form of a soul made righteous by God. A soul that found those lawless deeds to be torment day after day. Our first impulse is to blast Lot for not getting out of there. 
We, we think he was an idiot to stay in such a place. We say, come on, the torment would have ended the day he moved his family out of that city to anywhere else. Anyone who actually cared about righteousness would have gotten out of there and he would have done so a long time before God found it necessary to destroy his city. So we have little sympathy for Lot. How can we sympathize with someone whose torment is self-inflicted? But beloved, is that God's assessment of Lot's heart in this passage? Aren't we constrained to see Lot's heart the way God describes it? By the way, would moving your family to another physical place shelter you and your children from being tempted by the sensual conduct of godless men? How effective would that be? By the way, there's, there's evidence in the passage that Lot was a man of influence in that city and perhaps he was doing his very best to represent God in that place. No. Unless you move to the wilderness and make yourself useless to God for adding souls to His kingdom, changing your physical location isn't going to keep you out of temptation. Unfortunately, there are some Christians who try to do that. Three times in just two verses, Peter refers to Lot as righteous. Three times in two verses. And he contrasts Lot directly with the lawless and unprincipled men of Sodom and Gomorrah who were turned to ash in God's judgment. God is using the true story of his dealings with Lot to tell us something very important about his dealings with us. Many Bible teachers acknowledge Noah as a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. But have you ever thought of Lot as a foreshadowing of Christ? Some of you are thinking, well, Tom just went around the bend. I believe Peter is setting Lot before us both as a foreshadowing of the torment, the vexation of Christ's perfectly righteous soul every single day that he lived among fallen men in this cursed world and as a foreshadowing of the vexation of our redeemed souls that we as Christ's people experience every single day that we live here and now among fallen men in a cursed world. God promises us a coming complete deliverance out from the midst of all of that temptation. A deliverance that will coincide with His fierce and final judgment against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But He also, He also promises to enable us to endure, to persevere in righteousness in the midst of the testing that we face every single day between now and that great day of deliverance. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation is overtaking you but such as is common to man. And God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able with the temptation will provide also a way of escape that you may be able to endure it, to endure the temptation. So which is it? Escape or endurance? Aren't those mutually exclusive? You don't have to endure something that you have escaped, right? (laughs) Well, what if those two promises from God 
are so linked together that they're not really two promises but one. What if the complete rescue that's coming is simply the finishing out of a rescue that's already ongoing? What if the way we escape from the snare of sinful temptation here and now is through God-empowered endurance to resist that relentless temptation? And what if the promise of the ultimate coming escape is a critical part of what enables that endurance right now? God promises an escape that's coming and that promise fortifies us to endure temptation now. That brings us right back to the living hope that the first epistle of Peter was all about. Living hope that sustains and empowers us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, and in the midst of temptation. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul makes a beautiful declaration concerning God's miraculous deliverance of His holy ones both now and later. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 17 and 18, listen to this. Paul says, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And then he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God stands with us and strengthens us through His indwelling Holy Spirit day by day with a power, a person who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine. He says, according to the power that is at work within you. You've heard me say it before. That's not God as the cosmic situation changer. That is God as the one who does eternally powerful things in us and through us. He provides many deliverances during our time on this cursed earth. He rescues us day by day. And He will rescue us in full on that glorious day that is certainly coming. Brothers and sisters, you and I will stumble many, many times in this life. Countless times. We will falter in our resolve to resist the snares of the evil one. But we will not be overcome. We will not be enslaved by those snares. If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, then know this. When it feels to you like you are helpless to dig your way out of a besetting sin that seems to control you, know that digging your way out is not how you lay hold of victory over that temptation and that sin. You lay hold of victory over temptation the same way you lay hold of every other blessing that belongs to you in Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but the life that I now live, I live, the life I now live in this flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. How do I live? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. We want a methodology for resisting sin. Here's God's methodology, beloved. Believe in your deliverer. Believe in the one who has taken up residence in you to empower you to live in a manner, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So many Christians are crippled because they don't believe that they have been empowered. They're buying a lie. And it shuts them down. God has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He has filled you with the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him above every authority and dominion and every name that is named both in this age and in the age to come. What else do you need? One of the most disabling lies that Satan and his representatives on this earth love to tell you as a child of God is that God has not given you the power or the equipment that you need to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. When you stop believing that horrible lie and you start counting daily on God's promise that He has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness, then you will begin to lay hold of that marvelous equipment and that unassailable power and you will get to watch the Holy Spirit within you prove His promises to you every single day. i got to quit. But next Sunday, we're going to look one more time at the most critical piece of that equipment. That sure and powerful fortification that God has placed right in our hands right now. So stay tuned. Dear Father, we ask, as our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to ask, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And even as we ask it, we confess to You that You promise to say yes to that prayer every single day, just as You promise to give us our necessary daily food. You've given us everything we need for real life and real godliness. Humble us to believe that promise and teach us, Father, to lay hold of that marvelous equipping that we may both stand firm and grow up in the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and so that He may shine the light of His grace brightly through us to lost and dying souls. It is in His name that we pray. Amen.